Thanks for tuning in to High Green, the Boston and Maine Railroad Historical Society's official podcast. High Green is funded by your membership in the Boston and Maine Railroad Historical Society, and any opinions expressed throughout the show are solely those of the owner. We hope you enjoyed today's show, and as always, if you're interested in learning more about our organization, you can visit our website, www.bmrrhs.org. Perhaps this story hasn't been told in B&M circles, but no. it, it's a B&M story and it's a good one. And the next thing you know, we hear 119 getting out of town with his steam engine working like the hell. He's going up by way of Rutland. We hope you've been enjoying High Green. Before we get to tonight's feature segment, just wanted to give you a little preview of some of the shows that we have coming up. We've recently unearthed a trove of audio cassette tapes in the archives, interviews with B&M railroaders throughout the years. For example, railroad stories from B&M engineer Lloyd McNair, the railroads of Westford as told by Arnold Wilder, and also an interview with Bill Fletcher, who worked for the Fitchburg Railroad as early as 1900. Most of these interviews were done back in the 1980s, but we'll be bringing them to you in the next few weeks. In the meantime, you can find all the back episodes on our website, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Here in New England, where a majority of railroad mileage has been abandoned and turned into recreational trails, Hardcore railroad enthusiasts and trail enthusiasts often find themselves at odds with each other. But it doesn't always have to be that way, as Boston and Maine Railroad Historical Society and online committee member Andrew Rydell knows well. Andrew is both a railroad enthusiast, but also enjoys going out and walking old railroad lines and exploring the hardware and right-of-ways preserved by that trail development. Andrew recently interviewed Charles Martin, author of New Hampshire Rail Trails, a guidebook that bridges the gap between railroad enthusiasm and trail enthusiasm, and discusses the history that can be discovered along these corridors whose original intention was for railroads, and also the benefits which can be discovered along the modern-day trails. Hi, I'm Boston and Maine Railroad Historical Society member Andrew Rydell, and tonight on our High Green podcast, I have the pleasure of talking to Mr. Charles F. Martin. Charles is the author of New Hampshire Rail Trails, which was published in 2008, with a, with a second, more recent edition published in 2016. This book is not only a comprehensive guide to the rail trails of the state, but a very valuable asset for anyone who's looking to learn more about the history of railroad operations in New Hampshire, particularly the Boston and Maine. Charles has extensively researched these rail trails and has assembled them all together in a well-organized guidebook that should be on the shelf of any outdoor enthusiast as well as rail fan. Charles, welcome to High Green. Well, thank you so much, Andrew. I always like talking about uh, New Hampshire rail trails. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so we'll, uh, we'll just dig right in then. Um, how did your interest in New Hampshire rail trails all get started? Uh, my wife and I used to live in Concord, Massachusetts, and I heard about a group forming to uh, make a rail trail that's now called the Bruce Freeman Rail Trail. 
out of a north-south line that goes through Concord. And then when we moved to New Hampshire, the man who was leading that group introduced me to Alex Bernhardt, who was starting to work on the Northern Rail Trail uh, through our area in New Hampshire. Alex took me to the trail area and said, you know, we've got a really simple problem. The state owns the whole line here. And now our problem is that the railroad upgraded the line with ballast rock. Well, that's great when you're trying to get good drainage for a railroad, but it is terrible when you take the rails and ties off and then you try to walk or bike on it. So as Alex described, uh, all we need to do is get rid of the ballast. <laughs> and that turned out to be kind of tricky. It's not like there's a book out somewhere that says, hey, if you've got ballast and you're uh, abandoned railroad car, this is what you should do. Yeah, so it, it sounds like there are some uh, pretty physical challenges as far as creating some of these trails. It's not like when the railroad leaves, you can simply just start utilizing it immediately for recreation. Although in some cases, many people do do that, but to make it sort of an official quote unquote rail trail, you really have to go through a process of proper um, upgrading and ballast removal, et cetera. Yeah, and you do have to constantly take care of the trail, particularly um, with erosion. Mm. You know, the ballast was there to make sure you didn't have erosion. If you get rid of the ballast, then you have a more fragile trail surface. Over time, we came up with a process that works real well, which is uh, we don't actually remove the ballast rock. After the rails and ties are gone, we use a roller to press the ballast rock into the subsurface. And we actually get a surface that you can ride a bike on, but it's, it's not the best. So what we've done was we put um, crushed gravel on top of that surface and we have a very nice trail. Now we can do that because we've got a pretty rural area if the trail is in a urban area, then it is best to pave it. Mm, yeah, I guess an example of that would probably be the uh, recently paved uh, London Dairy Rail Trail, as well as the Dairy and Wyndham trails. I've uh, ridden on those, and those are asphalt as opposed to some of the trails in northern New Hampshire, like the northern or uh, I think the Warren to East Haverhill Trail, which are in fairly rural areas. Those appear to just be either hard pack, or in some cases, I think the Warren to East Haverhill might just be basic dirt too. Yeah, you do see a little of everything. One of the things I love about New Hampshire is that uh, in the live free or die state, things don't have to be perfect before they're used. <laughs> yeah, so uh, my, myself especially, um, I as a kid, one of the ways that I got so into the Boston Main Railroad was I'd ride in the family car, would oftentimes drive by the Potter Place train station. And I remember even as a kid, like I sort of always knew that that railroad was abandoned, but 
I was never quite certain of that. So I'd always sort of hoped to see a train going by Potter Place, but I never did. I mean, this was in the late 1980s, early 90s. And now, you know, it's just great to see that this corridor is being utilized for some form of recreation as opposed to just being broken up, sold off to private landowners, which unfortunately it sounds like uh, some other trails in New Hampshire have not been quite as fortunate as the Northern. Um, can you sort of give any examples where um, a, a, a rail corridor has been broken up by private ownership that makes it harder to then utilize it for a trail later on? Well, it's actually funny, Andrew. My first trail that I tried to uh, figure out for my book was on the Concord and Claremont line. Uh, that line was sometimes called the Concord and Claremont and sometimes the Claremont and Concord, <laughs> but it's all the same line. Um, it was sold off and became dozens of separate plots. Some of them uh, the railroad got a lot of money for, like uh, right by Lake Sunapee. But you're right, once you sell off plots and you now have a tremendously diverse ownership situation, it's really hard to bring the corridor back. So I know one of your questions was, if a rail trail is created, does that help uh, make sure uh, the corridor and a lot of the historic artifacts remain? And that's a really good point. Um, again, the Concord and Claremont line is a great example of how tough it is to bring a corridor back <laughs> once it's sold up, <laughs> sold into lots of different uh, parcels. Yeah, that's definitely something that I've observed over the years. Um, in my personal experience, one of the things I love the most about exploring a lot of these old rail trails is that it's almost kind of like a treasure hunt. You can, you know, if you know where to look, if you know what to look for, even on some lines that have been abandoned for almost a century at this point, it's pretty rare that I've gone out on a rail trail, not just in New Hampshire, but anywhere and not found some form of artifact or indication of what was once there. And especially on the rail trails in New Hampshire, I feel like since a lot of them are a little, as you alluded to a few minutes ago, they're kind of in, some of them are in more um, rougher shape, I guess I'll say. They're not quite as like finely polished as some of the trails in more urban areas. So I think in a way for people who are interested in the railroad history, having the trail in kind of that quote unquote, rougher shape actually leads to a more interesting experience on the trail because it's more likely you might find a hidden treasure here or there. Yeah, and sometimes it is very hard to find where in the world did the railroad go? Mm. Now, one of the things that was a eureka finding for me was that there's a set of antique topographic maps that have been scanned and digitized by the University of New Hampshire Library. And it is fantastic because you now can tell where did all these railroads go? <laughs> Originally, when I started scouting um, and I started on that Concord and Claremont line, 
it was hard to figure out where in the world the railroad went mm. <laughs> and hence what can you still find of the carter well a friend of mine had an old delorme road atlas and that actually had part of the concord and claremont routing but that was kind of awkward and when i found that wonderful set of antique topographic maps that uh, were produced in the last hundred years it was just so nice to know oh it went right here <laughs> yeah i've i myself have uh, utilized those topographic maps um one of uh one of the lines that i personally am particularly interested in is the segment of the former uh, Boston, Maine, White Mountains division between Plymouth and Woodsville abandoned in 1954. And a few sections are trails. You have the Warren to East Haverhill Trail. You have the um, Black Mount Trail, I believe it is, up towards uh, Black Mountain, Woodsville. And I think there's kind of like an informal trail between uh, part, a section of Plymouth and part of Rumney on the sort of tangent section. But um, some parts of that line like there was a bridge over the baker river right by uh just north of plymouth that was totally obliterated when they built interstate 93 and for many many years i was looking for any piece of evidence of that river crossing and i could never find anything but then finally through use of some of those historic topographic maps i was kind of able to roughly approximate like okay, here's where it is on the old map. Here's sort of how like the river goes. And, and I was sort of able to ascertain like, okay, they completely demolished that entire river crossing when they built the interstate highway through there. So those topographic maps, not just for rail trails or rail fans, but just in general, if you're looking to sort of validate any kind of history, those can be a huge asset. So I definitely... I definitely know that feeling to use those maps on sort of a treasure hunt, kind of. Yeah, they they are really helpful. And um, unfortunately, if you just Google antique topographic maps of New England, you won't find them. For some reason, that wonderful set got moved to a different site that's very hard to find. and. Uh, yeah, I can uh, let people know where the current location is, but frankly, uh, archival storage of computer information is a real problem. <laughs> Not only does the storage mechanism tend to change, but if you're getting it off a website and the website changes, uh, <laughs> it can be hard to find them. Mm, yeah. And uh, so one question I do want to ask you, Charles, getting uh, back to the two volumes of your book, I think what I find most interesting about them and what I'm sure many others listening to this particular podcast will is that your books are very unique in that they bridge a gap between a rail fan and a trail enthusiast. So I personally, like I love railroad history, obviously, hence uh, hosting, uh, being on this podcast right now with you. And I also love being outdoors and going on hikes and stuff. So it's just nice to have a rail trail guide that not just details the trail, but also um, appeals to the railroad history buff and the rail fan. So that was a really nice balance you made in the book that you uh, wrote. Yeah, 
books you wrote. Well, well, thank you, Andrew. Actually, I have to admit that I didn't particularly have folks like you who are railroad buffs in mind, but I thought it was very important to tell what was going on with the railroad, because otherwise you, you get on a trail and it goes from X to Y locations, and you start wondering, why was there a railroad here? <laughs> you know, there's a story, and sometimes those stories are really incredible in their own right, like uh, the Manchester and Keene line that went through incredibly tough terrain. Several contractors went broke <laughs> trying to build that. Why did they pick such a tough route? Well, it turns out that the railroads wanted to make some money. <laughs> and if they took a nice, direct, easy route between Manchester and Keene, well, there weren't any big towns nearby, so they wouldn't have gotten any revenue. <laughs> so instead, they took this route that went through one incredible trestle bridge to another. Uh, one of my friends described it as, uh, it must have been like an amusement park ride. <laughs> Yeah, I've, um, I think in your more recent edition uh, from 2016, you have a few, uh, a few different sections that sort of detail out the route of the Manchester and Keene. And my God, it, it's pretty incredible the route that this railroad took. And what always amazes me too, is it served such a rural area too. Like just knowing I'm not too, too familiar with that section in New Hampshire, but I've been up there enough times to know that there's not I can't imagine there was ever a whole lot of revenue along that line in the intermediate town. So that that railroad has always been kind of fascinating to me in that it was able to be built and run. Yeah, and I think it was at the Hancock Library that I ran into um, a surveyor's report of where the railroad should be built. And it's just hysterical to read this report because it says, well, let's see, you go over here and then you uh, veer over a little bit and you go over there. And they made it sound like it was, yeah, no sweat, easy to do. Well, <laughs> it was an awful route because to get to the few towns that might have some paying customers, they ended up having to build these humongous trestle bridges. And today, all that remains is really the jump off points for those trestles. Yeah, and even from the photos I've seen of those trestle abutments, I mean, it's still, some of them are quite large. I mean, you'll be driving down, oftentimes it looks like some pretty rural dirt roads in the woods. And, you know, when you look to your right or your left, you'll see this massive bridge abutment just kind of out there in the middle of nowhere, which again, just it really gives you an idea of how challenging some of this land was that these early railroads had to navigate to get where they needed to go. And when you also think too, fairly primitive construction technology and items like that back in those days, it's, it, it really is quite impressive. And it also speaks a lot in that a lot of these structures and abutments still survive intact to this day. Like they were built very soundly and solidly. You know, that, that's true, Andrew. The, um, 
the stonework for the old railroads was pretty darn impressive. Um, now, uh, it also led to some uh, friction amongst the different people working on the railroad because the stone cutters got a considerably higher wage than the people who were just moving dirt. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And actually, so speaking of stonework and abutments and such, um, sort of getting back to your guidebook and the rail trails themselves, uh, what what particular trails for sort of the railroad archaeologist, do you have a particular favorite trail that you'd recommend for somebody who sort of wants to see the most previous railroad infrastructure on their hike or their bike ride? Any specific recommendations? Well, of course, I'm a little prejudiced because my home trail is the Northern Rail Trail, and I'm on the board of the Merrimack County group helping the uh, Northern Rail Trail. But um, the historical artifacts that remain on our section are pretty impressive. Uh, one of my favorite things is um, telltales. Now this Boston and Maine group <laughs> probably knows all about telltales, but usually when I give a talk on the rail trails, I'll bring up that term and people go, huh, what's that? What, what's a telltale? <laughs> and one time a guy <laughs> piped up in the back of the room and said, dead men tell no tales. <laughs> ah which I thought was just a great explanation that, of course, telltales were a warning back in the days when brakemen had to climb over a car, climb down to the next car, set the brake by hand, then climb up, <laughs> go to the next car, set the brake by hand, and so on. And, you know, if they were on top of a car and they were about to come to a bridge, uh, that could be a fatal encounter. In fact, uh, the life expectancy of those guys was not super high. So the, the telltales were little dangly things that uh, if you were on top of a car and you felt a little tickle on your back, you had to duck down real quick because there was a bridge coming up. Uh, so it kept, kept you alert and made sure your reflexes were uh, quick, I guess but there certainly were a lot of people who lost their lives in those days. And fortunately, the Westinghouse air brakes came in and it became a much safer occupation. Yeah, and I think um, the other thing that I really enjoy about the Northern Trail as well is that I think, I, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Charles, but aren't pretty much all of the mileposts intact and repainted now at this point um, along the route? You know, we were really lucky, Andrew, in that um, when I hit the scene, you're right, almost all the mileposts were there. They were not painted, though. They were just bare granite because over the years, the paint had deteriorated. And we're very fortunate that a gentleman named Ed Hiller, who was active with the Andover Historical Society, um, did some research to see 
how did the Boston and Maine actually paint these milestones? And he actually restored the paint detail to look just the way it did when the Boston and Maine was in its glory. Yeah, I've seen uh, photos of I've seen photos of those, and I've also been fortunate enough to see a few of them uh, personally on the trail, and also driving along U.S. Route Four too. And it's really, it's amazing how sometimes just these little touches that, you know, I'm sure a lot of trail users may not notice them, but I'm sure a lot of trail users do notice them. And I think for many people, even if they're not railroad history people, that just having that little bit of history along the trail, I'm sure enhances the experience for a lot of users. And that's that's really great that the Northern was able to, you know, restore so many of those back to their original glory and just sort of enhance the experience. Yeah, and we are missing a few. And what we did for the missing mileposts was we uh, actually got some metal sign from the, uh, sign shop at the place in Concord, the, uh, the Concord prison. And they did a very nice job. The um, getting back to the sort of the bridging the gap between the railroad history and the modern trail user. So it's nice to, I think in a lot of cases, it's nice to see that these trails just serve a dual purpose. Like obviously they're there for the community, for recreation, for, you know, four season recreation, you know, you can cross country ski in the winter, you can ride your bike in the summer, you can hike or snowshoe. Um, there are many activities you can do on them. And in a lot of ways too, they also sort of preserve some important history of these towns, you know, be it a smaller town like Andover, New Hampshire, or a city like Manchester, New Hampshire, having these, having these trails is sort of a great way to not only provide the community with an asset for recreation, but to also remind people of sort of what was once there, you know? Yeah, um, I think one of the questions you had for me was, uh, how did I go about mixing the guidebook kind of content? Yeah. How do you find a trail? Uh, where does it go? Uh, where are the access points? Uh, what do you see? Combine that, with railroad information. And that took me quite a while actually with my first book to come up with what's a format that works well. And frankly, I've not seen any other rail trail guide in the country that comes close to doing what I did. So what I ended up doing is First, I describe the railroad and give a map of the railroad and what were the stops on the railroad. And then I go into each trail that um, used that corridor. And there was actually a third kind of map, which I call a region map. So I divided the entire state into five regions. So you could kind of see how did the different railroads connect with each other. And this turned out to be a, a very useful approach, I thought. And you know, I appreciate your good, kind words, Andrew, that you find it useful. Uh, 
one of the hardest things was coming up with the maps. You know, three kinds of maps, the region maps, the railroad maps, and the trail maps. That's a lot of maps. And guess what? It takes a lot of time to draw all those maps. <laughs> um, so I was not particularly into map drawing technology. And so I talked to a couple of map makers and got quotes from them on what it would cost. And I went, oh my God, my wife will never let me go into debt that far just to make a guidebook. <laughs> so I ended up with a very simple approach and people don't believe this when I tell them, but all the maps were drawn on PowerPoint. Wow, I, to be quite honest, I would never have guessed that myself from looking at them either. So that's, uh, that's, a, that's a very interesting note because I've always, uh, in both of your books, I've always very much admired the, the maps that you provided. And like I said, I never would have guessed that those were PowerPoint drawings. <laughs> So it worked and it was cheap enough to get the books done. My wife would not have allowed me to spend that kind of money with a professional map maker. Wow. And, and again, like I'll reiterate what I said earlier. I mean, you, you alluded to the fact that you haven't seen another rail trail guide like yours. And honestly, like I, I agree with you on that. And that's actually why we're having this discussion because I think there are a lot of rail trail people out there who they want to build the trail, like they want the trail for the community. But oftentimes in my personal experience, sometimes I feel like the history isn't as important to everybody. And like I said, when I purchased your first book back in 2008, as soon as I started looking through it, I was like, here's somebody who he's passionate about the rail trail, but he also very much wants to give the railroad history, it's just due as well. And, you know, it's just, I, at that time, I had never seen anything like that before. And to this day, I still haven't seen another rail trail guidebook like that. So it's very, it was just very interesting to see a book that not only gets you out on the trail, gets you active and exercising, but also says, but hey, check out, you know, this old station or look for this old stone arch bridge. You know, it's just very, just a nice mix of both history and, you know, practical uh, recreational use. Yeah, thank you, Andrew. I, once I came up with the format and got the swing of things, uh, then it was just a matter of grinding out <laughs> a lot of trails. Uh, and that's what I really enjoyed about doing the books. I have to admit that uh, although my publisher, Branchline Press, was extremely helpful and partly they were helpful because they understood railroad lore. Like I remember one time asking, so what's the difference between a station and a depot? <laughs> and they had to think for a few minutes and then they said, well, a place in a major city, that's definitely a station a place in a remote area that tends to be a depot. Hmm. And then you've got some spots that are kind of in between and people call it what they want to. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Yeah, I, I've actually wondered that myself over the years because I, I admit I have used the terms interchangeably and there have been some times I'm like, wait, is this a depot? Is this a station? Yeah, it's, uh, that's, that's actually an interesting little sidebar that I had never really uh, dug too deeply into. But yeah, that's an interesting uh, look at it. Yes, so I actually was very lucky with uh, working with Branchline Press, Diane and Ron Carr, because uh, all their other books were definitely oriented towards the railroads. You know, that had a book called uh, Railroad Lines of Northern New England, which was extremely useful to me when I was doing my research. But they were interested in my book for the same reason that you were that, hey, it makes a connection between what the railroad was and what's there now. Yeah, definitely. It's just, it's an interesting uh, combination of the two. And uh, let me ask you this, Charles. So obviously you've explored, um, I think, pretty much all of the rail trails in the state of New Hampshire. Um, what in your years of sort of doing the field research, uh, any specific uh, stories or incidents, um, or I guess I won't say, you know, or any interesting experiences you had on any specific rail trails that really stick out in your mind? Like any, just any noteworthy experiences you had on the trails while researching? I guess the thing that impressed me more than anything else was coming up to the Stone Arch Bridge in Keene. Huge, beautiful bridge. And I was just riding along the Cheshire Rail Trail and I didn't know anything about this bridge. So I came to it and was like, wow, this is incredible. That was really nice. And Diane Carr loved the fact that I had a picture where the the bridge was reflected in the water underneath and between the bridge and the reflection, you have a complete circle. <laughs> so she thought that was really cool. And then she didn't like the fact that it was low resolution. And I said, well, Diane, this is the only shot I've had that's been able to get that complete circle. So you either use that in low resolution or we'll, we'll use a different shot. <laughs> so in my, Second edition, you'll notice that it's there in low resolution. <laughs> yeah, uh, for me personally too, like I love locating stone arch bridges. And that's another thing I really like about your books is that they, they show the trail user, hey, after you cross this road in like a quarter mile, keep an eye out for such and such and there'll be a stone arch bridge. Cause oftentimes these bridges, they're hidden, they're like hidden underneath you. So, you know, if you're riding 20, 20, 20 miles per hour on your uh, Trek mountain bike, you know, you might 99 times out of a hundred, just race right over a beautiful stone arch bridge and never know it's there. But I mean, these, these bridges are nothing short of magnificent and it's great yeah. to, oh, yeah, great to give them their just due. And it is true that sometimes you'll go over a bridge and not know it. You think you're still on a fill. Yeah, I think uh, one in particular that you have a photo of, I think it's on, um, I believe it's in Wyndham on the Manchester, former Manchester and Lawrence Railroad on the Wyndham section. And it's either Wyndham or Derry. I can't remember which off the top of my head, but you have a nice photo of it. And I remember when I was on the trail, um, 
a few years ago, I was, yeah, just poking around looking for the bridge. And it, I think I passed over it maybe once or twice before I realized it was under me because they're that, they're that well hidden. And, you know, to have a book that sort of helps the trail user identify what they're crossing over is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I'm laughing, Andrew, because that particular bridge is really hard to notice. It just feels like you're going over another fill. Um, after missing it two or three times, I finally called up Mark Samsel, who was the head of the trail group for Wyndham. And I said, Mark, how do I find that bridge? <laughs> and he gave me some instructions, which I do have in the book. Yeah, because it's just it's just amazing. They're such massive, impressive structures, but it's just amazing how well they camouflage themselves in in the thick woods and everything. I mean, obviously, you know, when you're on the Keen Arch Bridge, that's pretty hard to not realize. But yeah, some of these other ones are pretty magnificent. And like I said, you could ride over them 99 times, and it might not be until that 100th time that you're like, oh my God, there's a magnificent bridge right under my feet here. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, Charles, what would you say have been some of the biggest challenges with establishing trails on some of these like longer abandoned corridors? I mean, I guess an example I'm thinking of right now is I'm familiar. I'm pretty familiar with the Newfound Lake area, and I know the town of Bristol recently has been talking about like establishing a rail trail within the town. But just due to the length of time that the railroad has been abandoned, I think since the 1930s, it sort of poses a more of a challenge than let's say a railroad that was abandoned 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, that's definitely true. The, um, the sooner after abandonment that you can get control of the corridor and make a trail out of it, the better chance that you'll have a nice rail trail. Um, as far as that, um, uh, trail up to Bristol goes. Um, I've talked to the city manager a couple of times and um, he would very much like to get a trail to go from Bristol Center down to the, the big waterfall. The biggest, well, there are two big problems there. One is there were some landslides that took out the corridor. <laughs> okay, well, you can probably go ahead and do something to get by the landslides. But then you have to deal with the Army Corps of Engineers and the town of Bristol and others to, <laughs> to make it all happen. And it's, uh, it's still a bit of a challenge, <laughs> shall I say. Yeah, very, very much so, I'd imagine. But one of the things that I especially love about the rail trails, especially within New Hampshire, too, is, you know, again, this sort of comes back to the point I made earlier that sometimes rail fans and rail trail enthusiasts, you know, they don't always see eye to eye. Like the rail trail enthusiasts will be like, you know, like this railroad is been abandoned for 20 years like where we need to put the trail in here or the rail fans might be like well we should preserve the corridor for potential future rail use 
But I think one of the interesting things about this, the former Boston main network in the state of New Hampshire is, I mean, let's be honest, unfortunately, there's just not going to be a need for restored rail service on many of these corridors ever again. Uh, you know, like example, I mean, I don't foresee Bristol, New Hampshire ever saying, oh, we need freight service back or, you know, New Boston, New Hampshire saying we need rail service or, I mean, I, I guess the Northern seems to be more of a potential candidate for future rail service many, many years down the road, potentially to my knowledge. But in many cases, a lot of these corridors, they would never be used for train service again and would just sort of rot away in the woods. So oftentimes I think the rail trails are the best way of preserving the corridor and the, and the history and letting everyone see what was once there. Yeah, now the, the Northern is an example of a railroad corridor that is preserved with the intent that if there is ever a need for railroad service again, um, the corridor can revert to rail. <clears throat> and people have talked about it being a site for the um, Boston to Montreal route. Uh, and there's been talk about having a high speed line between Boston and Montreal using the Northern Corridor. Unfortunately, engineering studies have said the old time railroads didn't worry about being super straight for high speed rail. <laughs> so um, they no longer talk about high speed Boston to Montreal train service. They talk about higher speed, <laughs> but mm -hmm. higher speed is you know, maybe just a a little bit more than what you'd be doing on Route 4 in your car. Um, so uh, to your point of, are these things ever going to revert to railroad service? Um, I think the answer is no with current technology. There may be a future technology with monorail or something like that, where that could happen. Um, but it's not going to happen anytime soon. And the thought of the state of New Hampshire putting billions of dollars into a new rail service, um, that's not likely to happen in my lifetime. Yeah, quite, quite possibly not in my lifetime either. So maybe, yeah, maybe in future generations. But yeah, I mean, like I was saying a minute ago, it's, I think, in many cases, the rail trail is the best way to satisfy both the, the trail people who want the recreational use, the rail fans who ideally, yes, the rail fans do want to see the corridor somehow repurposed for rail, but in the case that that's not just not realistically gonna happen, I mean, me personally, I think the rail trail is the next best option. To be quite honest, there's so many areas that I've been able to explore because they've been converted to rail trails. I mean, oftentimes I'm trying to think like um, different corridors that have been, uh, I think you mentioned the Concord and Claremont sections of that being cut up for private use here and there. And those sections, I mean, who knows, there could be, maybe there's a cult stone arch bridge on 
somewhere, or there could be a mile post hidden in the woods, but you might not be able to get there to see it because it's on private land. And the landowner might say like, Hey, I own this land. I'd prefer not to make it open for the public to access. And having that rail trail there ensures that everybody can kind of see what was once there and enjoy the history, which is what I personally find fascinating about the rail trails. Yeah. Now, a comment I should add, Andrew, on that. Uh, there are a lot of railroad corridors that you can ride a bike on, but they're not official rail trails. And often there's private property issues. And I made the decision with my book to not write up sections that were not official trails. So yeah, there are certainly abandoned railroad corridors besides what's in my book, that they tend not to be in terrific shape. Yeah, I, I could definitely see that. Like I think um, one of us alluded to earlier, sometimes corridors that have been abandoned fairly recently it could be in the works to convert them to an official rail trail. They may not yet be an official rail trail, but it seems like fairly quickly, at least when people realize that the trains are no longer running, even though it's not a quote unquote official rail trail, oftentimes you'll see people starting to utilize it. But obviously for the sake of an informative trail guide such as yours, I definitely, you know, I definitely understand the reason to just keep it to official rail trails. And I think that was a good decision on your part just to encourage people to ride what's available because I mean let's be honest no matter what county of New Hampshire you're in there there are plenty of uh, former Boston Main Railroad lines for you to explore I mean you could be you could be on the seacoast you could be in the Lake Sunapee area or you could be way up in the you know the Mount Washington Berlin area and you know you'll find a rail trail nearby yeah I guess one of the other things I should mention, Andrew, is there's another kind of railroad line that was developed in New Hampshire. It was the timber railroads. I don't know if you've explored any of those. I've hiked in the Lincoln Woods, if that's uh, what you're alluding to. I haven't haven't ventured too too deeply into the wilderness there, but I have done the like the Lincoln Woods Trail with the old ties embedded. Um, Actually, this past fall, I, I took my uh, young son on a little um, off-road uh, stroller ride, I guess you'd call it, on our little all-wheel drive Thule stroller. We uh, did the Lincoln Woods Trail and just bumped along on the ties that are still there. And that was, you know, it was nice. It was just a nice way to get take a nice nature walk in the woods. And it was something I could easily do with the stroller. You know, it didn't have to handle any technical terrain which is another great thing about these trails is that they're pretty easy for everyone to enjoy. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's a great example of Lincoln Woods Trail. Unfortunately, with the timber railroads, although sections of them were turned into forest service trails, uh, they didn't tend to go very far. And they were cut up and so I did some research trying to figure out, well, what's the best way to handle this? And uh, I punted, <laughs> I said, I'm just not gonna put timber railroads into this guide. <laughs> yeah, that, that's understandable. I mean, just given a few factors, like you said, there weren't always very long and 
some of them do go pretty deep into fairly remote woods in the mount in the uh, White Mountain National uh, Forest. So I could, I could see you know your decision just to keep it to sort of more quote unquote mainstream uh, railroads and abandoned rail corridors. Yeah, and I'm glad I did. I don't think I would ever have gotten finished with that book if I tried to figure out everything about the timber railroads. <laughs> Exactly. And, and like I said, I mean, no matter where you are in the state of New Hampshire, there is definitely a rail trail near you. And there's definitely likely an abandoned Boston Main Railroad corridor near you. I mean, unfortunately for us rail fans, but also in a lot of ways, that's good for people who want to explore the history and, you know, see it live on as a rail trail. It's nice to have that whole network within the state. Yeah. And it if a corridor is not turned into a trail, it doesn't last very long. The document that came out was really huge. I think it was a few hundred pages with an incredible collection of here are artifacts that you'll find. If you've got the battle maps, you can see exactly where they are. Um, DOT was just amazed. And of course, historic resources in New Hampshire uh, led into that and said, hey, let's preserve this stuff. And you know, I think we trail users and railroad buffs are on the same side on this. Let's keep as much as we can of what was there. Charles, I guess I'll uh, start to wrap us up here with a final question for you. For folks listening to this podcast who are interested in acquiring your book, um, where can they do that? Uh, it's certainly available on Amazon, uh, but it's also available in a number of the bike shops and some bookstores. I think our uh, New London bookstore carries it, for example. All right. So I think, uh, Charles, that's about all the time we have for tonight. But um, uh, this has definitely been an extremely informative discussion. And I Greatly appreciate your time coming on High Green, sharing your knowledge and experience with us. This has uh, really been an interesting discussion and definitely um, anytime you'd like to rejoin us and have a further discussion, uh, you would certainly be welcome. Okay, well, thank you, Andrew. I appreciate the work you're going through to uh, make such podcasts happen. That's all we have time for today. We hope you enjoyed today's show, and as always, if you're interested in learning more about the Boston and Maine Railroad Historical Society or joining us, you can visit our website, www.bmrrhs.org.